Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that. Biblical. Biblical. Theology. Theology. Study. The person of God. Attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergy. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline And the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine What he starts, he finishes with dedication A work of art, from Genesis to Revelation From God's creation, to man's fall to redemption to consummation His designs and structure, each time will fluster What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses Who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes So clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest story ever told The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we got See the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Another edition of Theology Matters. I'm your host, Devin Palou, and we are glad that you could join us tonight. We've got a good show 
uh, lined up for you guys. We're going to have my good friend uh, Adam Tucker. He's been on the been on the show quite a few times. I think more probably more than more than any guest we've had. So <laughs> he's a brilliant guy. Um, going to be diving into the issue of the Mormon view of God. So we're going to be looking at that pretty hot and heavy. We're going to look at some of the philosophical uh, as well as theological problems uh, with the Mormon view of God. So stick around for that. A um, little housekeeping here to get out of the way. If you have not liked our Facebook page, uh, please go to facebook.com uh, slash theology matters with the Palouse. Facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouse. We have a, that's where we keep our update our podcasts and articles, videos, all kind of good stuff there. Uh, our email. Uh, we do get emails and, and people do write in and have uh, ideas for the show or maybe want to be a guest. You can reach us at theologymattersradio at gmail.com. That's theologymattersradio at gmail.com. Also, if you guys have, um, you know, for example, local apologetic events or something, you know, this show dealing pretty much with, with you know, theological, philosophical, and apologetic issues, um, let us know. Drop us an email. Let us know that there's going to be some uh, apologetic events where, wherever you're at, and that way we can let other people know, we'll put it over air, and uh, and that way people can know where the where the events are. You know, we're here in uh, North Carolina, and uh, I'm a student at Southern Evangelical Seminary. And i got to tell you, right where I'm at is is it's perfect for apologetics. I mean, you see the big names all the time walking around here. You know, it's it's uh, definitely the mecca of uh, apologetics. So it's, it's a good place to be. But, you know, not every place is. I remember when I lived in Utah... I remember when I lived in Oregon. It's very hard to find uh, other apologists, uh, but also uh, being able to find apologetic events like you know seminars or or whatever. So that's why we say you know if you're you got a place where you're at, if you have uh, people coming and speaking at your church, Creation Ministries International. I know a lot of times uh, put speakers out there and they do different tours. Let us know. And, uh, and like I say, we can let others know about that. So I wanted to start the show today. I was going to play a, uh, a clip. It's, it's a trailer from a new movie coming out called God's Not Dead. And the video comes out, I think it starts Friday night, tomorrow night. And uh, it's, a, it's a great opportunity to be able to um, talk about these issues. It's going to put these issues out there and it will create good dialogue. And so, you know, we're recommending people go see the show. Uh, it would be a good opportunity. People would go there. They're going to probably be interested in some of these issues. I personally know a few skeptics that, that plan on going. They want to go and just uh, kind of see what the show's about. Um, you know, typical with Christian movies, a lot of times the acting may not be the greatest, the story plot or the line may not be the greatest. I, I don't know if that's the case because I haven't seen this show. Uh, but you know, regardless of whether it is or not, it's a great opportunity to be able to uh, 
talk with other people about these issues. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to play this this uh, trailer for you. Uh, God's not dead comes out tomorrow in theaters. All this stuff, temporary. Money, success, even life is temporary. Jesus, that's eternal. And that's it? That's it. That's yeah. what we're going with. I'm Professor Radisson, philosophy 150. This semester I propose that we refuse to waste our limited time together debating the existence of the big man in the sky. Fill in the papers I've just given you with three little words. God is dead. I can't do what you want, I'm a Christian. We've got your results back. You have cancer. The answer's simple, drop the class. It's like it's something that God wants me to do. I can't just turn away from it. Somehow. You really should go see Mom. What's in it for me? If you cannot bring yourself to admit that God is dead, then you will need to defend the antithesis. You're here because that voice inside you isn't happy with the choices everyone else wants you to make. It's not easy. Mr. Wheaton, are you ready? We're going to put God on trial. What do you say to people who don't believe? We disown him, he'll disown us. You think you're smarter than me, Wheaton? You think there's any argument you can make that I won't have an answer for? In that classroom, there is a God, and yet, I'm him. It doesn't seem quite fair to me. I can't help what the boy wants to make a fool of himself. Look, I know I am in the minority here, but I actually believe in God. I think you're here kind of hoping that this stuff is for me. You pray for you. To me, he's not dead. He's alive. God wants for them to make their own choice. That's what God wants. You just want to ensnare them in your primitive superstition. Why do you hate God? Science supports his existence. You know the truth. Why do you hate him? Why do you hate God? All right. So, as you guys can can hear there, it sounds like a like a good movie. And I think it's unique uh, because it's, it's not like a lot of other, you know, Christian videos out. A lot of times apologetics is kind of the, the elephant in the room. Uh, people just, they don't want to talk about it. They don't care about the issue. They don't see um, the need for it necessarily. Uh, it's just kind of uh, assumed that people believe that God exists or believe that the Bible uh, is the Word of God. And so... It's rare, like I say, for a movie to be to to come out and to focus on this type of a, a format. I think it's I think it's going to be exciting. I think it's going to be a good movie, and I think it's it's going to give us a lot of uh, great opportunity to to talk with people. So I would suggest you know go on go on to this this film, try and start up some dialogue. Uh, one of the things I was going to talk about quickly here was uh, myself. Uh, and uh, my friend Stephanie are uh, chapter directors at Winthrop University here in Rock Hill, South, South Carolina. 
and I wanted to kind of introduce you guys to Ratio Christie. I've, I've had a few people on here before and have done some interviews. I think we had Blake on and, and some other people. In fact, the guy that's uh, our friend that's coming up tonight, Adam, he is a uh, Ratio Christie director at UNCG. And so I wanted to kind of just briefly talk about that uh, for a moment because it's, it's related kind of to this film. Ratio Christie is a group that is all over, um, really all over the U.S., and they have all, all kind of different um, clubs that are on campus. And Ratio Christie is the Latin means reason for Christ. And what it is is it's apologetic-based groups uh, that are on the college campus. And so maybe uh, maybe where you're at, maybe they don't have that, and you'd be interested in in, in uh, having a a ratio Christie on your campus, and maybe you're a trained apologist, and you would you'd like to be uh, involved in starting a ratio Christie. Again, email us theologymattersradio at gmail dot com, theologymattersradio at gmail dot com, and we'll give you guys some more info on that. But I wanted to play the video. Uh, it's six seven minutes long. It talks about what is Ratio Christi, what is the purpose of Ratio Christi, and you know why do we need it on the campus? Uh, again, it, it's very similar to uh, the video. I think the uh, Ratio Christi in the movie, I'm not sure if our Ratio is sponsoring it, but I know Ratio Christi is really trying to take advantage of this movie uh, because it is a lot of the stuff that we deal with uh, at the university level. Anyway, here is a, a video that's uh, six, seven minutes long. We'll introduce you to what Ratio Christi is and why uh, it is needed on campus. If I could have a moment of your time, I would like to bring to your attention a very serious issue. The intellectual viability of the Christian worldview is being challenged in the classrooms by other students and even the professors. This is accomplished by anti-religious campus organizations and gatherings. Look in a mirror and understand the delusion of Christianity. Once you can see what is going on, the hope is that you will be able to start healing your delusion. With each healing, we make our world a better place. Best-selling books by famous atheistic professors geared toward college students. and speeches promoting militant atheism. These people, the reflective people, they know, they know there aren't any good reasons to believe in God. We've got them on the run. We're almost there. We're almost there. All done with one goal in mind. Make religion look stupid while recruiting students to the secular worldview. Call the world's most famous atheist, Richard Dawkins. I can't tell you how excited I am to see students taking up the banner of secularism and the secular student alliance is carrying the banner forward and it is very very exciting to all of us in the movement to see young people involved young people involved and it's working statistics show that up to 80 percent of professing Christians will walk away from their faith while attending secular colleges and universities many within the first year they simply are not intellectually prepared to face the onslaught of even the most basic objections to the Christian worldview. How do you know that Jesus is the only way? I... 
This is a tough question. Why are there why the contradictions if the Bible's the word of God? But why not believe in Muhammad with, with what he says? I mean, mm-hmm. so what makes the Bible so different? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> um, you know what? I'm going to have to pass my question for now. We are losing the battle for our students. We need a solution to win back the universities for the cause of Christ. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. This is what the Lord asks of all Christians to do in 1 Peter 3.15. Hi, my name's Jenna and I'm a part of a university organization called Ratio Christi, which trains us to do just that. Ratio Christi is a non-profit student apologetics organization spreading a renaissance of Christian thought throughout secular universities around the world. Apologetics is the science and art of defending the faith using logic and reason while sharing the Christian worldview. The purpose of Ratio Christi is to train, educate, and equip students on the principles of how to think, not what to think. I'd like to welcome everyone this evening to the first ever Ratio Christi debate featuring Dr. Michael Tooley and Dr. William Lane Craig. Good evening and uh, thank you very much. Uh, I want to thank Ratio Christi. Now in tonight's debate, uh, I'm going to defend one basic contention, namely that the arguments for theism are better than the arguments for atheism. Through weekly meetings, we aim to stimulate intellectual integrity with debate, lectures, dialogue, and discussion on the most pressing topics of our day. The secular worldview has spread throughout universities, having an impact on the way students perceive their own beliefs. Ratio Christi is here to equip Christian students in answering the questions of science, philosophy, history, and worldview. We want to achieve our goal of reestablishing Christian thinking in the academic setting. There are three ways in which you can help support Ratio Christi. Through prayer, informing other Christians of the organization, and finally, donations. Ratio Christi relies on your financial support to help sustain the organization. So come help us win back the universities for the cause of Christ. Let me share what one student said after participating in a Rossio Christi club at North Carolina State. Rossio Christi has given me something that I did not know exists, a rational and logical defense for my faith. When I dialogue with atheists, they are shocked I have a defense. When I run into skeptics, they are overwhelmed by the amount of evidence supporting creation. Last but not least, when I talk to Christians about this, they find that their belief has a strong historical foundation that cannot be shaken. As a Ratio Christi chapter director, I have found this extremely exciting 
because I have seen lives transformed. By coming to one of our organization meetings, you can actually meet solid, true Christians and ask questions and get the real truth, get down to the bottom nitty-gritty truth of what it means to be a Christian. Not only can you be confident in your faith, but then you can defend it. It's really given me a solid foundation to stand upon. It. It's really given me confidence in my faith. Those other people who are listening who may have doubts or may not be sure of their religion or choices yet, they can go, oh, there's another side. They helped them uh, meet these objections on a very intellectual level. They are no longer afraid to come in confrontation with people who might disagree with them. It's so easy to walk away from your faith if you don't know these answers, if you're unaware that there are answers out there. And that we can know why we believe powerful stuff. Alright, so there you have it. And there's kind of the, the need that we have to have this kind of a uh, thing on campus. Very important, you know, as we are um, as we're finding out. Um, the latest stats are 75% of kids who were brought up in a Christian home, 75% turn their back on the Christian faith after the first year of college. So after one year of college, they go they go there, been brought up Christian their whole life in a Christian home, and normally what happens is a professor or students. Uh, will attack the Christian worldview, and what happens? This is this is kind of what what I have seen more than one time, and I've even seen this happen with pastors' kids, where they go and they end up taking a class, say under someone like uh, Dr. Bart Ehrman or something like that, and are being told that the Bible's not reliable. We don't know who wrote the Bible. Uh, it's full of contradictions. Uh, the events were written hundreds of years after what happened. Uh, and then they go to science class and they're being inundated with evolution and being told that uh, man, uh, that everything is related uh, back to a common ancestor and that there's no evidence uh, at all that uh, there's any type of intelligent design. And then maybe they go to, to physics class and they're hearing how the universe came from nothing and uh, nothing is unstable, and given enough time, it's certainly to be something. You know, these this kind of nonsense. That's what they hear, and then they go home, and they talk to their, their parents. And, of course, parents really don't know what to do at this point. They don't really know how to answer a lot of these objections. And so they send them to the pastor. And, uh, well, surely the pastor, he should be able to, to help answer these questions. And a lot of times what happens is, unfortunately, the pastors uh, will just say something like, uh, you know, it just it takes faith. You know, you got to hang in there. You just got to have faith. So what happens is kids are discouraged when this happens. Uh, and, I, again, I'm speaking from experience because I saw this in my own life. It's very discouraging because what you're, you're being told in the science class, uh, that's kind of like, well, this, this is real life. This is where, you know, we... We can test and operate and do these type of things. Uh, and then Sunday, well, that's just that's just religion, and that's what we do there. 
and they make a really sharp dichotomy between faith and reason. And eventually, it will take a toll on uh, on the, the young adult's faith, or even the child. I've I've seen stories where child, you know, there's a kid in Sunday school who's asking questions like, "How did dinosaurs fit in the Bible?" or "What about cavemen?" How, how did Noah get all the animals on the ark? Or is the Bible reliable? These type of things. Miracles. And the kids are basically just told to, to shut up and not ask questions and just believe because, well, doubt makes baby Jesus cry <laughs> type of a thing. I'll tell you, some of the, uh, the biggest objections we get and some of the biggest resistance we get to apologetics is from other Christians. Basically, it's twofold. One group thinks that uh, if you can prove the existence of God, of course, you have to define what you mean by prove the existence of God, but if you can give, if you can give evidence, if you can give arguments for the existence of God, then somehow that does away with faith. And we don't want to take away from faith because uh, then that would displease God. And so a lot of a lot of Christians look at apologetics as a threat. It's almost as the more illogical and the more irrational Christianity is, the more faith I have to have to believe it, and therefore the more that pleases God. But of course that's just a, a terrible view of what the biblical view of faith is. The Greek word is pistis, it means to trust. It's not a blind faith, it's not a, a faith based on ignorance. Right? So you have good examples of Jesus, for example giving evidence for who he was several times. He, he would say, if you don't believe the words that I say, believe the works then that I do. With John the Baptist, when he was uh, imprisoned, and he sent his disciples and asked Jesus, are you the Christ or are we to look for another one? Remember what Jesus' reply was. He said, well, go back and tell them what you've seen, the deaf hear, the blind see, the dead are raised. And he points to his, the miracles that he's done. He points to the work that he's done. He's not just claiming who he is uh, and not providing reasons to believe it. He's giving evidence for it. So the first group has a bad view of faith. The second group, and uh, this is more on the Reformed side, and I'm uh, Reformed myself, so I'm not uh, trying to bag on them, but it's this idea that man is so depraved he can't reason, he can't think, he can't use logic. Uh, again, not all. I'm not saying all reformed people believe that. I don't even think that's a correct view of the of the real presuppositional method. I just see some reformed people go to that extreme, right? But not that's all of them. Uh, and they they would think, uh, well, you don't even give evidence. Uh, that's that's a sin to give evidence that God exists because man already knows God exists. And uh, man isn't saved by arguments, but man is saved by preaching of the cross. And of course, it's just a false dichotomy, right? It's not the Holy Spirit or arguments. It can be God the Holy Spirit using arguments to knock down those objections and save people, right? What he did with me. Again, I, I grew up in a Christian home. Actually, he came out of Mormonism when I was about four, but I don't, I don't remember any of that. Um, but came out of a Christian home. My father was a pastor. Again, I have a lot of these same issues uh, as far as how do you know God exists, how do you know the Bible's true. And, you know, my parents just, they, they didn't know. They didn't know how to answer that. They were trying to deal with trying to, you know, uh, 
become unbrainwashed for Mormonism. And so they, they didn't know, and I don't hold that against them. Uh, but my grandfather, who was a World War II vet, uh, came from England, and just, you know, during that whole skeptical time of, uh, you know, atheism, really. And that's what he held to. And I remember, you know, watching, uh, we'd be out in his house and watching uh, Nova and Nature. He loved those programs. And see the, the lion ripping the guts out of the zebra or just terrible things happening. And he was convinced, well, God, God does not exist. Or he would see what he thought was, you know, evidence for evolution and never hurt hearing the other side. And uh, it was, you know, those types of things had a big impact on me. And it was actually when I was in my 20s, after about four or five years of very hard drinking, uh, flipping through the channels, it was right around this time of year, I think it was March 23rd, uh, on the John Ankerberg show, they were playing a debate between Gary Habermas and Anthony Flew. Gary Habermas is one of the world's best experts on the evidence for the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he was debating, it was at the time, one of the most philosophical, uh, foremost philosophical atheists, Anthony Flew. And I just remember before watching that, and I always liked to, I always liked debate. I, I always, always did. My sister was a high school debate champ. <laughs> and so I always enjoyed that. But I remember thinking, you know, the Christian is going to get destroyed because we, you know, we take everything by faith. And after watching that and seeing Dr. Habermas bury this atheist in historical, philosophical, and um, other type of arguments, you know, God saved me that night. I was on my knees that night. I knew what I was supposed to believe for 25 years of my life, but I didn't know... Uh, exactly why I should believe it. And so that's why we encourage you guys. Go see the movie God's Not Dead. Go see that. It'll be a good encouragement for people that are there. Uh, introduce them to apologetics. Normally kind of how apologetics happens is you get, get, a, get somebody in the church that's interested in it, and they kind of spread it like a wildfire. So please go see that movie over this weekend. I'm not sure how long it will be uh, lasting. Uh, but if you get a chance, go see that. And also, uh, if you're interested more in Ratio Christie, contact us at theologymattersradio at gmail.com. We'll give you information on that. What we're going to do right now is transition. I'm going to go ahead and go to a quick uh, one-minute commercial, and then we will bring on our guest, uh, Adam Tucker. Be right back. You're listening to the Ankerberg Minute with apologist and best-selling author, Dr. John Ankerberg. In today's postmodern culture, people increasingly ask, does absolute truth exist? Some claim our beliefs and values are purely subjective, based on no absolute moral authority. But is this what the Bible communicates? Certainly not. The Bible declares that God's words are absolutely true. The psalmist wrote that the laws of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The Apostle Paul noted that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. While today's skeptics may question whether truth exists, God has provided a clear response for those seeking a perfect standard on which to base their life. Allow God's perfect truth to refine your heart and life today. For additional resources on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org. All right, welcome back to Theology Matters. 
And joining us now is my good friend, Adam Tucker, and he's an apologetics instructor, interfaith evangelum, uh, evangelist specialist, easy for me to say, uh, with the North, North American Mission Board and campus director at Rashio Christie at University of North Carolina, Greensboro. And uh, I've had Adam on the show a few times. And he recently wrote an article on uh, some of the philosophical problems with Mormonism, with their nature, with the nature of God. And so I thought, man, it'd be great to to have him on and do a show. So, Adam, are you there? I'm here. All right, man. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Can you hear me? I can hear you great. Yes, sir. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Good to be back with you. Telling the telling the people we've had you on the show, I think more than any other guest, uh, we think highly. I'm of sorry. Yeah, so sad. Just a glutton for punishment, right? <laughs> or sorry for your listeners, I should say. No, no. So, Adam, uh, tell us also. Uh, I guess we didn't have anything down there about your your schooling. What are you What are you studying right now, and where at? I am uh, pursuing my MA in apologetics and in philosophy at uh, both of our homes, Southern Evangelical Seminary. So I'm on the 80-year plan. Hope to graduate uh, before my three-year-old. That's my goal. <laughs> well, that's. I think I'm, I must be on that same plan with you. So uh, I don't know if you caught caught the the beginning of the show, but what I did is, um, and, and we can talk about this for a few minutes before we jump into the topic, but. Um, I played the uh, the trailer from God's Not Dead. I know that's coming out tomorrow. Uh, talk to us a little bit. Why why should we go see that film, and and uh, is it important? And how can we maybe use it to uh, spread uh, spread apologetics a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you did that. Uh, I've, I've screened it uh, along with a number of our Rescue Christie uh, leadership, and uh, I. I think it's probably the best quote-unquote Christian movie that I've seen, um, quality-wise and, and story-wise. You know, it has its cringe moments, of course, but uh, nothing, nothing's perfect. Uh, but from a Ratio Christie standpoint, you know, we we decided that it's something we can't not use uh, to just spread the word about apologetics and really to have apologetics on the big screen uh, and get people to know what it is. And, and I think it's a great vehicle for church leadership and for families and parents and, and youth uh, to see, uh, to number one, just be encouraged. I, I walked out of there uh, encouraged and pumped up to, to take a stand, to do what Jude 3 says, to contend earnestly for the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. Because uh, really it's not just about the apologetics arguments. There are several stories that are intertwined uh, throughout the movie that really all just have the same message to, to stand up boldly, uh, obviously lovingly, but boldly and uncompromisingly uh, for the truth of, of Christianity and oh, why it's true. Uh, you know, I don't think it's necessarily a, a, an evangelistic tool, at least from, from my standpoint, but as far as uh, encouraging Christians to, to take a stand and, and to know that there are reasons out there to actually think this is true, not just blindly believing like you were talking about a bit earlier, uh, I think it does a great job at that. Talk to us a little bit about Ratio Christi. Uh, I know you're the, the chapter director. Tell us a little bit about that, kind of how the film maybe ties in with that. 
Uh, well, as uh, some of your listeners, I'm sure know, and if you, I'm sure you have uh, communicated. You know, we're all about uh, number one, equi- equipping uh, Christian students to know why they believe what they say they believe, to to be uh, to become conversational evangelists is kind of our our buzzword that we use a lot, uh, and to uh, uh, just encourage them uh, to to take a stand, to to be bold evangelists, not scared of questions. Uh, so number one, to answer their own questions, and number two, equip them to answer other people's questions. Uh, you know, but we're open to, to anyone. Uh, we, we love for uh, skeptics and unbelievers and uh, folks of other belief systems to come to our meetings to you know interact, ask questions, and, and all that sort of thing. It really is a safe place for questions and doubts and, and all of that. Uh, but you know, the the whole point of the movie uh, of God's Not Dead is Josh, the main character, the student. Uh, kind of on his own, uh, doing all this research and, and learning all these apologetics arguments and things, and presenting them, you know, to his professor in class. And uh, you know, you know, whether or not that situation actually happens, you know, we don't encourage our kids just to stand up in the middle of class and interrupt the professor and do anything like that, uh, which Joshua isn't either. Uh, but that's certainly not our mo. Uh, but our whole point is. <laughs> You know, if Rasher Christie would have been on his campus, he wouldn't have to. He wouldn't have had to do all that alone. But that is precisely right. what we do uh, to equip the Joshes out there uh, to to take a stand and to know why Christianity is actually true. You know, some some of the experiences we've had on Winthrop, uh, some of them have been good, some have been bad. Uh, as of yet, the only the only uh, campus uh, clubs that have really reached out to us have been the skeptics. Uh, wow. The other Christian clubs really don't want a whole lot to do with apologetics. And I was talking a little bit about that earlier about kind of some of the, the false views of um, apologetics and, and some of the problems uh, with that. But one of the things that I noticed, uh, what we did is we actually streamed the, the Ken Ham Bill Nye debate. And I know that's mm-hmm. you know, a lot of controversy over that whole debate, <laughs> Ken Ham and his methodology and all that. But uh, it, it's a great tool to be able to kind of engage with people. And as we were able to talk to several atheists, what impressed them was that we were not just appealing to the Bible, uh, but we were actually given some good reasons as well to think that the, that the Bible is the Word of God, that God exists. And they hadn't encountered that. This one particular uh, atheist, lady had not encountered that before. And she was so impressed, she's, she's uh, contacted the Freethinkers Club. We're going to ha- have a huge event uh, April 15th on the campus, campus of Winthrop uh, doing a talk on God and science and then open up for our Q&A. It's going to fill probably 200 seats. But it was amazing to me. You know, She was saying, look, we, we've never had anything like this on the campus, and we want it here. So here, That's the awesome. Christians don't want us there. Yeah, the Christians don't want us there, but but the atheists do. Uh, have you have you run into some of those issues? Maybe you could talk for just a minute about kind of the uh, the climate of apologetics in evangelical uh, Christianity. Maybe a few reasons that you've run into as to why people don't think we should really engage in apologetics. Yeah, fortunately, uh, campus-wise, anyway, uh, at UNC Greensboro, we've had uh, really good relationships with most of the other Christian ministries, and uh, I've been able to, some I already had personal relationships with from from high school, as a matter of fact, just happened to end up on the same campus, 
uh, with some of the directors, wow. but others, uh, you know, we, we became friends quickly and we partnered on, on different events and things. So it's really been uh, good, but I've heard, you know, same stories from other campuses that the, some of the other ministries just didn't see the value of it, didn't see the need for it. And, uh, you know, like you said, <laughs> the atheist club is, is your, your end kind of to, to get an event started. So I guess it's kind of the old, what God meant for evil, or what men meant for evil, God meant for good, sort of thing. So he can he can use everything for his glory, which is awesome. Uh, but you know, just from from just Christians in general, uh, I, I think it's just an intimidation factor a lot of times that you know the apologists are those in the ivory tower somewhere, and people don't like to argue, and they just want to share their story and that sort of thing. And you know, I tell people that's fine. Your story is important, but everybody has a story. Uh, your story is not the reason I should think what you say is actually true, uh, just because it worked for you in some way. And if you're telling me that we can argue, well, you're making an argument right now. <laughs> that is what an argument is. You, you don't want to quarrel with people. And, and you're correct. We're not supposed to quarrel with people, but we are supposed to make persuasive cases for what we believe. And the last time I checked, that's what we call evangelism. Uh, so it's just this whole mindset that we have to, to get people to not only to think well, but to even know how to think well in the first place. And that we're we're fighting the uphill battle, but I think it's uh, you know God God is faithful, and uh, there, I think there is a revival in, in Christian thinking, so to speak. So uh, we'll keep fighting the good fight. That's right. Yeah, you know I, I think it's R.C. Sproul who said everyone is a philosopher. Everyone is a philosopher and everyone's a exactly. theologian. Uh, the, the question is, are you going to be good or are you going to be bad at it? <laughs> but you can't help exactly. doing it. You're, you're not going to get out of doing philosophy, and you're not going to even get out of doing some type of, of theology. So, uh, yeah, Absolutely. Go, go see that film. We would definitely uh, encourage you guys to go see the film. Use it as a good opportunity. Uh, get your church involved. That, and uh, that you know that's one of the other things I've noticed too is a lot of the churches have just not really been involved. I, I, I think you're right. I think there is kind of a seems to be turning a little bit because of people like Lee Strobel and William Lane Craig and some of these big names, uh, Ravi Zacharias. I, I do think that is. I think there is a little. There's a turning of the tide. I, I do think uh, apologetics is becoming uh, something that is more. Accessible for sure, but also I think people are having greater interest at the local church level. So, great movie to mm-hmm. go take your church to uh, as well. So, all right, well let's uh, let's get on to this amazing topic. Now, I posted the first article I think on our on our theology matters page. If not, I can check and make sure we did. Um, but what we'll do is we'll just we'll start out kind of telling us a little bit about what do, what do Christians mean by God, um, kind of historically. And then maybe we could go over some of the attributes, arguing uh, just kind of philosophically for, for the Christian God, and then we could make it with some, some scriptures. Does that sound good? or Sounds good. All right. You take it away. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you said uh, historically, because as you know, uh, what Christians mean by God uh, can vary drastically from uh, your just in the sky to your grandfather in the sky with a cane waiting to bash you over the head, uh, everything in between. 
but historically, uh, Christian theism is just the view that there is an uncaused cause that just is uh, self-existent being itself. It's not a being among others. It just is being itself. Uh, and, and as such, it is, is, is transcendent and can change, uh, can't change, that is. Uh, all the omnis, of course, all-knowing, all-powerful, uh, all-loving, all-good, all those things. Uh, it's immaterial, of course, and uh, that, those are things we can, we can gather just philosophically. Uh, but then, of course, biblically, we know that uh, God exists as uh, a trinity, one side in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, which we can't reason to. That That's something we, we glean from special revelation from the Bible. Uh, but as that same special revelation says, there there's a lot about the very nature of God and his existence that we can know just by thinking well about reality as it is. Wow. That's, that's good. I, I remember sitting in Dr. Potter's class, and uh, we're going over... Uh, prolegomena, which is kind of the before theology, we're dealing with uh, metaphysics. Mm-hmm. And I remember him saying that I think it was the call to just look, just from looking at a tree could reason back to the existence of God. Yeah. Can you can you talk talk a little bit about that? What did what did he mean by that? How can we just by viewing something as simple as a tree get back to therefore God must exist? Yeah, absolutely. And all this deals in, like you said, in in metaphysics. And, you know, if you go to your uh, bookstore or something, you may see the metaphysics section and think we're talking about witchcraft and reading people's minds and uh, all this other mumbo-jumbo wooji stuff. But uh, uh, philosophically, metaphysics is just the study of of reality, being as being. What does it mean to, to be? Uh, what does it mean to be human or to be a tree or anything like that uh, is a very fundamental uh, aspect of philosophy, and again, something we all do, whether we know it or not. So uh, since it is so fundamental, many of our other, if not all of our other conclusions from science and, and everything else that we do stems from our views of metaphysics. Uh, so if we're doing bad metaphysics, we're going to be doing bad philosophy uh, generally and everything else. Uh, but right. that's why I, I love these arguments. They're, we don't think in these terms anymore, <laughs> though we should. Um, so it's more difficult for people to, to understand and to you know just have a casual conversation about. Uh, but right. I think once you at least start grasping these concepts, uh, the arguments for God's existence become so much more powerful. And really, I tell people, it, it affects your worship. I remember the first uh, yeah. first uh, um, theology class I took was, was uh, theology property and the nature of God and all those sorts of things that I, I know you've had. And, um, you know, understanding, you're not really understanding, but having just a, a better glimpse of who God actually is and I thought he was yeah. big before. He was, he was nothing <laughs> compared to who he actually is, the, what the great I am actually means when you have a philosophical understanding of that. And, and then you hear these yeah. worship songs and stuff, and, and they take on a whole new meaning then. I remember sitting in church one Sunday, and I told my wife, you know, some song we sang a hundred times, and I leaned over and told my wife, if you would have just got out of the class that I just got out of, this song would mean 
something completely different to you than it does right now. Uh, That's how awesome God is. And and you're right. I mean, we can just look at a tree and say, it's obvious that this tree exists. It, It is evident to my senses that this tree exists. And from that reason to the need for something who who just is being itself, not just creating this tree sometime in the past, but sustaining this tree in existence at this very moment. And, and anything that exists is sustained in existence at this very moment. Uh, and when you understand that and how dependent we are on God, it can't help but change your your view of who God is and, again, really your, your worship of, of who he is. I don't know if you want to get into the whole aspect of the argument, but we can if you would like. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say one thing, too. Uh, a proper understanding of, of good metaphysics, uh, as we deal with issues like Mormonism, again, uh, a lot of Christians think, well, the only place you can go is the Bible. That's the only place you can fight the ground. You know, I'm, obviously, I'm not against the Bible. I'm a good Protestant, sure. you know, Sola Scriptura. Uh, but, just looking at philosophy, I think we could easily demonstrate the Mormon view of God is incoherent. It can't be true. Absolutely. Not incoherent, but yeah. impossible. Right. Right. That's, that's, and and necessarily so. Right, yeah. Well, let's let's do that. Where did you uh, where did you want to start at? You want to kind of give us maybe a, a overview of the Christian view of God? And some of the some of the attributes. I, I guess you kind of kind of already did that. Not sure if you wanted to add to that or. Um. Sure. Yeah. Let, well, let's just talk about the the tree for a minute, and just so I'm not asserting things here, just to, to briefly lay out the argument as to how this works and why these conclusions really follow necessarily, given uh, given the metaphysics that we're doing in. Uh, and as you know, and just to inform your listeners, you know this this comes from thinking of Thomas Aquinas, who uh, kind of synthesized Aristotle's views, and uh, uh, I've come to believe kind of perfected Aristotle's views and really get the whole lot right when it comes to metaphysics. And you don't have to agree with everything he had to say about uh, the church or anything else like that. But just talking metaphysics right at the moment, uh, you know, I don't think you can do better uh, than Aquinas' views there. And so he would say something like, uh, it's evident to us that that a tree exists. And uh, use this example in part two of of the the blog post you were mentioning earlier. Um, You know, if I said uh, an apple tree, well, everyone listening to this will know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, If I said a money tree, well, presumably everyone's heard that expression before, and so everyone would again know what I'm talking about. The difference between the two is that an apple tree actually exists, Somewhere, an extra mental reality, you know, it doesn't matter if we're talking about a specific apple tree at the current moment, uh, and money trees we know don't exist because we all wish money grew on trees. That's the whole uh, point of that little phrase. Uh, So there must be something uh, that makes those two things different, and Aquinas would say that the difference is uh, that there's a distinction between something's essence and something's existence, or in other words, what something is versus that something actually exists. Uh, and he uses the example of a, a man or of a phoenix. You know, we all know know what human means, regardless of whether we know any particular human exists or not. Uh, just like we all know what a phoenix is, 
uh, even though we know one doesn't actually exist. We could use unicorns or leprechauns or any other type of example uh, to make the same point. Uh, so if something's essence and existence are, are distinct, then we have to ask, is existence part of what it means to be apple tree, for example? And, and the obvious answer would be no, because apple trees haven't we – we would say there's an apple tree in my backyard that I'm looking at right now. And there's not, but just for example purposes, there are all kinds of other trees. Um, but for example purposes, there's an apple tree out there. Well, I know that apple tree hasn't always existed. It, it once upon a time never existed, and then it came from a tree and sprouted up and became an apple tree, and one day it'll die and cease to exist. And I could burn it down and it could become a pile of ash and could change you know, into all other sorts of things. could cut it down and build up a doghouse out of it or, or whatever. Um, it, so it doesn't exist necessarily. Uh, so it hasn't always existed. We know it, it, it's not uncaused. Uh, so the only other uh, option is was caused by something else or self-caused. Well, of course, self-causation would be a, a contradiction, like a square circle. It, it's impossible. You'd have to exist prior to existing in order to cause yourself to exist, which is nonsense. Uh, so really the only other logical option is that it's being caused to exist by another. In other words, something is uh, conjoining its essence and existence together so that it actually exists. And Ed Fazer, uh, one of, uh, I'm sure both of our favorite, one of our favorite philosophers, uh, would argue that yes, that sir. has to be, I'm sorry? I just said yes, sir. Oh yes, <laughs> you said one of one of our favorite philosophers. I was agreeing with you. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and he would argue that uh, at every moment that tree exists, something has to continually join that essence and existence together. And so we could ask, well, what is doing that? Uh, what if we said it's something else who also is a combination of essence and existence? That its essence and existence are different things that it's being conjoined together, well, then we'd have to ask, well, what's sustaining it in existence? And we could go on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Uh, this is what, uh, again, Phaser and what Aquinas would call an essentially ordered causal series. Uh, it's not a – it's different than an accidentally ordered series. I know we're getting kind of technical here, but it really is important, especially for what we're going to talk about. An accidentally ordered series would be like um, a father having a son and – uh, son having a son, his son having a son, his son having a son, so on and so on, and each son having their own existence regardless of whether their father still exists. Their father could die, and the son would still exist and have his own power to have his own son, that sort of thing. That's what Aquinas would call an accidentally ordered causal series. Uh, but an essentially ordered series would be, uh, say we had an infinitely long line of train cars. This is an example in the blog post. Uh, and each train car gets its uh, movement from the train car in front of it. And that train gets its movement from the train car in front of it, so on and so on and so on. And it's infinitely long line of train cars. Well, would we ever have any movement if we just have this infinitely long line of train cars? Obviously, no. There has to be something that just is movement to, to provide the movement uh, for these train cars. There has to be an engine. Uh, and that's just an analogy, so we can't carry it too far. Uh, but that's an essentially ordered series that, that er, at every moment, not looking back in time, but looking vertically, so to speak, here and now, there has to be something providing 
the movement for those train cars to move. There has to be an engine. Uh, so likewise, we would say there has to be something who's something that exists who isn't receiving its existence from something else. Its essence and existence aren't distinct, but if they're not distinct, they would just be the same. In other words, what it is is to be, to exist. Uh, something very similar to what Exodus 3.14 says when God says, I am. He just is existence itself. So just looking at a tree or a rock or a shoe or uh, an apple or anything we could look at in, in material reality and, and see that they are a combination of essence and existence. And if that is the case, there must be something whose essence and existence are identical uh, that just is existence itself, sustaining those things in being. And as Aquinas would say, this everyone knows to be God. Of course, that hasn't proved Christianity, but uh, it's a very good uh, very good start to, to understanding a little bit of, of who God is and where these classical attributes of God come from. Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to kind of ask just for a second. Um, what are the other uh, religions that hold that monotheistic view of God? Well, that would be Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. Uh, and, of course, Islam, we would get into some some distinctions there uh, philosophically with, with their view of God. Uh, but the, it necessarily follows from from there being a, a being whose essence and existence are identical, uh, that it just is unlimited being itself. Uh, and everything else that has being of any sort gets its being from this unlimited being, from this God. Uh, and so that's how we get that that he's uh, all-knowing and all-powerful and uh, all-good and, and all these things. And there are, you know, again, specific arguments for each of those. Uh, but knowing that this being is unlimited because its essence and existence are identical, uh, it necessarily is unlimited. That's where all these omnis uh, come from, uh, and again, you know, generally speaking, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam would would hold to a at least a theistic view with some some distinctions here and there. Okay, so philosophically, then we can get to to monotheism and uh, a monotheistic uh, yeah. god. Okay, uh, but uh, it's uh, as you had said earlier, special revelation, and maybe you can touch on that for a second. What a special revelation. And according to the Bible, who is God? Yeah, well, special revelation would be uh, what we consider the Bible. Uh, you know, God speaking uh, through His chosen people, through through His prophets, through the apostles, who were confirmed by miracles. Excuse me, uh, so on and so forth. And, and so we have, uh, you know, all these arguments that God exists, that the Bible is reliable, and we can trust what it says. And then we can conclude that, well, it says this about God, that he is a trinity, and you know, so so forth. Uh, so we have independent reasons to believe that this revelation is trustworthy, that comes from a trustworthy authority, uh, so we can believe what God reveals about himself uh, that we can't otherwise read to. Uh, the fact that Jesus was both God and man, that he died for our sins, you know, things that we can't see. Or, or philosophically uh, debate about uh, that we just have to be told 
just like you would have to take on authority what I had for breakfast yesterday sort of thing. Uh, we can uh, <laughs> philosophize about that. Um, so we have reason to believe this God exists, that he is trustworthy, and he has revealed uh, who he is. Uh, but the neat thing is, and Aquinas points this out, you know, you, philosophers debate about this stuff and may take time to study this stuff, but, you know, your average Christian generally doesn't, even though I would argue they probably should, but they still usually don't. Uh, and so God even reveals in special revelation some of these things that we can also reason about. For example, I'll keep referencing Exodus 3.14. You know, God said his name is I Am. Uh, Colossians 1 comes to mind where it talks about Jesus and uh, that through him everything was created, by him everything was created, uh, and he sustains everything in existence, yeah. uh, which is just what we reason to I'm sorry. That's right. Let's. Yeah, yeah. I was just saying that text also. He's before all things, right? As well. Right. So right. We have that eternality. Let me do this. Let me uh, press you on a couple of questions real quick before we jump into the Mormon view of God, just so there's some clarity. Because I know um, with the doctrine of the Trinity, sometimes it brings a lot of confusion. Um, I, I don't know if, if you knew, but I had actually grown, uh, grew up in Utah spent 23 years there. My mother was born in Utah, and, uh, well, actually she was born in England, but came over on the Queen Mary as a baby, and uh, wow. was raised in the, in the Mormon church. And so this issue is, you know, pretty dear to me as, uh, you know, I've got a lot of friends and family that are, are still Mormons, and um, so, you know, you deal with, with, with some of these issues a lot. But let me ask you this, just so we're getting just a little more clarity on the Christian view of God. Uh, one of the things that uh, Mormons will often confuse, I think, with the Trinity is, is they will think that we're talking about three separate gods yet in one God, and that it's somehow illogical or irrational. Right. How do you respond to that? How do, how do how do we answer that question? Well, given your background in Mormonism, I'm going to start asking the questions and then you can answer because you know about this stuff a lot better than I do. Uh, but uh, I would simply respond, uh, you know, if that is what the Trinity teaches, uh, then they're right. It would be false. It would be a contradiction and necessarily false if we say there's three gods and one god or three persons and one person uh, or that sort of thing. And the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, make this mistake too, and atheists often make this mistake as well. Um, yeah. But that is not at all what uh, what the Trinity teaches. It, it is certainly something beyond our ability to comprehend. Uh, as, you know, our friend Norman Geisler says, we can apprehend it even though we can't fully comprehend it. Uh, so we can apprehend what's been revealed even though we may not have a great uh, concrete example uh, to, to grasp or for our minds to grasp a hold of or anything like that. Uh, but... Uh, in, in the most basic terms, and that's about the, the ability I have to understand the Trinity anyway, uh, is, is kind of back to this uh, notion of essence a bit, uh, that there exists something that essence is God, and that is one thing that could actually only be one thing necessarily from our argument earlier that its essence and existence are, are uh, the same, that it just is being, there couldn't possibly be two uh, such beings, there'd be a way for them to differ. Um, so there, there is only one, uh, one being that is 
and this shows the limits of our English language, so I'm, I'm speaking loosely here. Uh, but there is only one being whose essence is God. But within this being, there exist three distinctions, uh, which we call persons, not person like you and me, but uh, three three distinctions within this one God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, so I know I know Dr. Geisler uses this uh, illustration a lot, and really it's the best illustration I've heard, and there are a lot of bad illustrations out there. Uh, but to, just to consider it a triangle, you know, the, that there is one thing that is of essence triangleness, if you will, that is a geometric figure. Uh, but within this one triangle, there are three sides or three angles. Uh, so it's an equilateral, equilateral triangle, then there's three equal angles. Uh, take one away, you don't have a triangle anymore. But, but all three are equal in their triangleness, so to speak. Uh, and, and so we have kind of the three in oneness there that, again, is a very rudimentary illustration. You can't carry it too far, uh, but at least right. helps you somewhat grasp what what's being communicated. And that's probably as clear as mud, but that's about as clear as I can make it. <laughs> no, that's that's good. One more question for you, because you hear this objection a lot. I'd like to have you break it down for us. Does logic apply to God? Because I hear this Does logic all the time. Apply to God? Yeah, yeah, that's something like, well, it can't be, it can't be three gods and one god because that would be a contradiction. And then, kind of, sometimes mm-hmm. the reply you get is, well, God can do anything. Uh, God's above mm-hmm. logic. How do you respond to that? Right. Uh, that is a great question, and uh, I've had that conversation with people in my church before. So this is certainly not just a Mormon issue. This is uh, across right. the board. Uh, and logic is simply way reality works. And, and so if we're saying that God is self-existent being and, and the source of all reality other than himself, well, logic is simply an outworking of who he is, of his nature. Uh, so even God can't make a square circle. The square circle is not some thing to be made. It's nothing. It's an impossibility. God can't make a married bachelor. He can't make another God. Uh, God can't do a lot of things because those things aren't even possible to be done. Uh, so when we say God is all-powerful, it doesn't mean that he can just do whatever he wants to do uh, because he can't do the illogical because those things aren't even things in the first place. Uh, so logic is the outworking of reality. God is the source of reality, so therefore God is logical in that sense. doesn't mean we fully understand everything and, and that sort of thing, but we know we can't do contradictions or, or things like that. All right, the number to call in for those people who are interested, I uh, would love to love to have your questions or comments, 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. Three nine zero seven. We got Adam here, and uh, going over the philosophical uh, problems with the Mormon God, and would love to hear from you. What we're going to do, uh, Adam, take a two-minute break, and uh, we'll be back right after that, and then we'll continue uh, kind of getting more into the topic of uh, the Mormon view of God and some of the philosophical uh, problems that we have with it. So we will be back right after this. 
Over three chapters, the book of Genesis vividly describes a worldwide flood that began with all the fountains of the great deep bursting forth and the floodgates of heaven being opened. The reality of Noah's flood is the crux of the conflict between evolutionary and biblical worldviews. If this global deluge really happened, then the millions of years of earth history and evolutionary progression supposedly seen in the fossil record are swept away. The flood accounts for the major geological features and the vast majority of the fossil record. Indeed, the fossils themselves are a mute testimony to the truth of the flood. We find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. Just what you would expect from the biblical account. If Christians were to believe and effectively defend the biblical account of the flood, then the basis for the evolutionary worldview would largely collapse. Many people would be saved from such a great pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. The situation at the time of the flood was a situation of pure moral relativism where everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It sounds like a description that was written in yesterday's newspaper. And when God destroyed all of that, the descendants of Noah come up with an idea to do exactly the same thing. They're going to build their own city, a city that will endure. And the crowning achievement of that city will be the tower that reaches up to heaven, the Tower of Babel. For today's special offer, visit RenewingYourMind.org. Theology Matters, and I am joined with my good friend Adam Tucker, and we are looking at some of the philosophical and uh, theological issues as well, mainly mainly philosophical problems uh, with the Mormon view of God. In America, you know, we we, uh, are exposed a lot to Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, It's not uncommon at all on a Saturday morning to be uh, woke up out of bed, uh, or woke up from your afternoon nap to have a couple uh, Mormons at the door. And I've always said what a great opportunity to invite them in, get them something cool to drink, and 
develop a nice dialogue over some of these important issues. So, Adam, uh, we've kind of got over what we mean uh, by the Christian view of God, with some of the attributes of God. Uh, let's get into kind of what we mean by what do the Mormons think of when, when they say God. And uh, before you do that real quick, let me give the number out again, 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. Taking your calls, uh, questions, comments, whatever, if you don't have to agree. Uh, we just would like some good dialogue. So, what is the Mormon? Uh, how does the Mormon view God? What is, what is the Mormon concept of God? Uh, well, it is quite different uh, than the historic uh, Christian understanding uh, of of who God is. Uh, actually, I have a, a couple of quotes here, uh, just so it's coming straight from the source and not. Uh, not from me and my misunderstanding. If I've misunderstood these quotes, then that's one thing. Uh, but certainly not something I'm making up. Uh, the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, which is linked from the official Latter-day Saints uh, website, uh, says this, says, All individual human spirits were begotten, not created, nothing or made, by the Father in a pre-mortal state where they lived and were nurtured by heaven's parents. Gods and humans represent a single divine lineage, the same species of being, although they and he are at different stages of progress. This doctrine is stated concisely in a well-known couplet by President Lorenzo Snow, as man now is, God once was, as God now is, man may be. Out of pre-existing chaos, matter unorganized, Father created an orderly universe. Out of pre-existing intelligence, he begat spirit children. So essentially, our God is uh, the offspring of his God, who is the offspring of his God, who's the offspring of his God, so on and so forth, to infinity, uh, uh, I assume. Uh, And these gods construct their worlds out of eternal matter, so to speak, and and this pre-existing intelligence, which is not totally clear what that is. Uh, and, and they're not creating from nothing, out of nothing. They're not creating something out of nothing. Uh, and they are themselves created beings. Uh, so essentially, uh, we could progress to godhood. And, and as that said, we're all of the same uh, species of being. So God is just a being uh, amongst others. And actually, Joseph Smith Jr., who, as you know, founded uh, the Latter-day Saints, uh, he said, uh, "There is, I think this is from Doctrine and Covenants, there is no such thing as immaterial matter. All spirit is matter, but it is more fine or pure and can only be discerned by pure eyes. We cannot see it, but when our bodies are purified, we shall see that it is all matter. So essentially, if I'm reading this correctly, it really boils down to a spiritualized, materialistic worldview. <laughs> Uh, that everything, even God, is matter of, of some sort, and, and matter just always has been and exists necessarily in some way. So very different from uh, the the classical understanding of, of who God is, and I would say the biblical understanding uh, of who God is and of reality as far as that goes. Sorry about that, Adam. I was having a little little technical issue there. Um, no, we have some question or 
No, yeah. no, I so didn't know how far you wanted me to go with that. Yeah, whatever, whatever you got there. So, what, one of the things I wanted to bring up real, real quick, uh, as you were talking about some of the philosophical issues, also um, the idea of an eternal universe. That would seem to also be kind of in contradiction uh, to what we know with with the best modern science, wouldn't it? Uh, well, I think so. Uh, I think uh, William and Craig does a great job of using the Kalam cosmological argument from the, the beginning uh, of the universe, and I'm sure you've seen the, the study that was released just this week uh, with the ripples, so to speak, and the uh, cosmic background yeah. radiation, just more confirmation for the, the standard model of the Big Bang. Um, but, you know, then you have other folks that, that argue, like Richard Carrier and others, who argue for a, a multiverse of some sort or a Big Bang, a Big Crunch, a Big Bang, a Big Crunch, and this sort of thing. Uh, now there are, you know, scientific arguments for and against all those things, or, or I should say right. uh, quasi-scientific arguments. They're, they're doing philosophy when they're doing that. But, um, uh, right. you know, I think even even <laughs> beyond – I was yeah, well, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, even beyond the Big Bang and you know whether the universe began to exist or, and all this sort of stuff, um, I think those are important conversations to have. But you know the science is always changing. We're finding new new discoveries or old models are being changed and this, that, and the other. Uh, when we look at arguments like uh, Aquinas makes and looking at the metaphysical arguments, we're looking at things that are much more fundamental, things that that our right. science has to take for granted. Things that aren't going to change right. because they're they're just the most the fundamental yeah. level we can look at, uh, and, right. and so I think if we argue from that standpoint, we don't have to be bothered by what the latest scientific thing is or is not, and, and our arguments for God and for the impossibility of a, of an eternal universe uh, uh, creating itself or sustaining itself or or just being a brute fact, uh, as Richard Carrier calls it, uh, they have no force at all. If we're doing good right. metaphysics, you know, now don't get me wrong. I think the universe began to exist, and you know I think we have good reason to think that. Uh, but my arguments for God's existence don't stand or fall with that particular argument. Right, right. Because back in the day, you know, with uh, with with Saint Thomas, obviously, you know, they didn't have Big Bang cosmology, and it was thought that the universe was eternal. Clear up until what the 50, 1950s or 60s? Uh, yeah, yeah. Certain. Uh, certain scientific findings put steady state theory to bed. But let mm-hmm. me ask you this. You brought up the, the Kalam cosmological argument. I was curious, have you seen uh, the book that had came out, I think it was edited by Frank Beckwith, Moreland, and Dr. Craig, called the, the New Mormon Challenge, I think it is called? Yes, I have. I, I have uh, okay. read pieces of it. I haven't I haven't read the whole thing, but uh, yeah, I've read, read several okay. parts of it. One of the chapters. It's been in there, a while, gonna, you know, Yeah, yeah. One, one of the chapters in there, and I was going to ask you about it because you brought up how there's kind of this infinite uh, number of gods and regression of gods. How does the Kalam cosmological argument deal with uh, with that? Because that doesn't just apply to the universe. You could also apply it to the Mormon concept of God, couldn't you? Yeah, I think so. And uh, again, I think Dr. Craig does a, a great job of that. And and I think that's a really good argument. Aquinas, you know, he may not accept it. I don't know. He may today if he was alive. I have no idea. Um, but but essentially saying, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, but from my understanding, uh, the basic argument is 
if there were, say, an infinite number of days prior to today, we would never arrive at now because we would have an infinite number of days to, to get through before we got to today. Right. And if we had went through an infinite number of days, we would have an infinite more number of days to arrive at today. So we never could get to now. And, and apply that to Mormonism if there was an infinite number of gods begetting gods, begetting gods, begetting gods, then we would never get it our God in this particular universe uh, that we inhabit uh, because we'd have an infinite number of gods to beget an infinite number of gods to arrive at where we are now, and that just seems philosophically impossible. Yeah, it's, it's a brilliant argument. What well, one thing, you know, just having you know, question and do do Mormons really engage with a lot of these? Issues. I mean, I know there's kind of a lay level of Mormon apologists. Um, I think Farm and Bear, just the, the names. But do they, do they have philosophers? Do they are they able to kind of engage with some of the higher level uh, philosophical objections? And do they do they do a good job with that? Well, I think it's an excellent question and an excellent point. And two things that come to mind. One, just to answer your question. Uh, I have not engaged heavily uh, in in their, um, I would say, more intellectual uh, philosophers other than Osler and and folks that are quoted in the work that that Frank Beckwith and those folks do, which you you mentioned earlier. Um, But they do have certain uh, apologetics entities and, and different places that deal with this. But from what I've seen, most of the time they're dealing with the, you know, arguing against the genetic claims that uh, the Israelites didn't arrive to North America and the the North American natives weren't descendants of the uh, of the Israelites, that sort of thing. Uh, there aren't archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon and, and those sorts of claims. Uh, I haven't seen a whole lot of work uh, done with these particular accounts dealing with uh, God's existence. What I have seen, and again, this is quoted in some work by Beckwith and others, and even on, on, on the Latter-day Saint website, just in my own research, it is just a, a claim that, you know, all this metaphysics and stuff you guys are talking about from Aquinas and these other guys, that's all Greek philosophy, and it's pagan thought, and God is beyond that, and we can't we can't succumb to this pagan way of thinking. We have to believe God for what he has actually told us, and all that is is Unfortunately, it's a genetic fallacy, which is, as you know, it's saying something's false just from where it comes from uh, without actually making an argument against the claim being made. Uh, so it doesn't matter whether a pagan or uh, a Buddhist or who says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's a true statement. We should do that. Uh, and all truth is God's truth. Uh, and we need to we need to grab a hold of it uh, where we, even the Bible says that, test all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Uh, even even the pagan can can stumble across truth uh, just because we've been given minds to think with, and we can look at reality and understand many things about God, which again is exactly what God says we can do uh, in His Word. But the other thing, that, real quick, that I would add to that is, you know, it brings up an excellent point when we're talking to Mormons or when we're talking to Jehovah's Witnesses or, or to anyone for that matter they may not know what their own faith tradition teaches, just like many Christians don't know what historic Christianity 
actually teaches. So we can't just assume that they think what we think they think or, or that they believe what we uh, assume that they believe. We have to ask us the importance of asking questions and, and knowing who we're talking to and not talking past each other and, and making assumptions that uh, come back to, to hurt us in the end. Yeah, especially, you know, with the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, they purposely use the same type of, of language. So, I mean, you can have Mormons in there. Yeah, we believe in the Trinity, of course. We, you know, mm-hmm. and Yes, we believe yeah. Jesus is God. So they use the same language, and a lot of times I think they themselves, uh, and even the missionaries, you know, when you press them, they, a lot of them just don't understand that they're, they're on faith, like you say. Yeah, absolutely. Again, you know, we actually had a... Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no, go go right ahead. Oh, we just, we had a couple of uh, Mormon missionaries uh, in one of their uh, I forget what they call it their their version of I guess like local Bible college kind of thing uh, institute I think is what they called it their their local institute uh, teacher to our Russia Christie meeting a couple of weeks ago because we're studying this stuff this semester other belief systems and things. Uh, and, and so he, you know, just presented what Mormonism is and did some Q&A and that sort of thing, and we were cross-examining it, you know, for a couple of weeks after that. Um, but some folks started asking questions kind of in the middle of his presentation, and so then he just stopped and really did Q&A for, you know, 45 minutes or probably almost an hour. Uh, and, and this is a guy that gets paid to teach wow. the missionaries that are in his area and that sort of thing. And, and it was sad because, you know, he may have been putting on a front. I don't know. Uh, and he was very nice. You know, they, they did a, a very nice job being cordial and polite and, you know, all that all that stuff. But he really could an- not answer any of the hard questions, any of the meaningful questions. And he would just appeal to you know, either, either authority and of Joseph Smith or the Book of Mormon or – some new revelation, you know, as you know, they're, they're, they consider their uh, prophets and, and church leadership to, to be able to receive authoritative revelation continually. Uh, and, and so really had no substantive arguments for, for a lot of these things. Uh, and we didn't get into a lot of the stuff we're dealing with, but even just some of the more basic questions the students were asking that were just obvious questions from what he was presenting, uh, he really just had no good answer. And predictably, uh, kind of stereotypically, I guess, when I asked him at the end, kind of closing out, you know, thank you for, for your time and everything that you've presented, uh, but I also want to know why you think this is actually true. Uh, and, of course, predictably, you know, he, he says, well, I've studied it, I've prayed about it, and I just know that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God, and Joseph Smith is his prophet, and, you know, appealing to testimony and the feelings, essentially. Uh, and right. boy, does that does that get us into trouble real quick? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot, of, a lot of Christians do that now, nowadays too, don't they? Yes, the yes. Uh, emotions and the feelings, but the, the difference is, you know, they're they just don't they're just ignorant of Christian theology. As to where with Mormonism, really, that is kind of the essence. Is there is this idea of, of praying and, and getting certain feelings and confirmations and uh, and such. But uh, let's do this. Let's uh, let's have you break down some of the philosophical uh, problems uh, that you see with the Mormon view of God. All righty. Uh, well, I'll, I'll take your listeners back to our apple tree in the backyard for a minute. Uh, 
And you know, just from looking at that apple tree, we concluded that there necessarily has to exist something whose essence and existence are identical, something that just is being itself, sustaining everything else that exists uh, in existence at every moment that it exists. Now, for Aquinas, he would he would grant the fact that you know, okay, maybe the universe is eternal. Uh, maybe matter is eternal and exists some necessary way. Uh, but his question was, can it exist, can it have its uh, existence, its necessity of itself? In other words, maybe we can't point to a time that it began to exist. Uh, it's, it's simultaneously eternal with its creator or whatever. Uh, but can it be its own existence? And remember, we only have three options. It's either uncaused, caused by another, or, or self-caused. And we can rule out self-causation because we said that's a contradiction and, and it's necessarily false. So this eternal matter, we'll grant this for the sake of argument that it exists, uh, this eternal matter that all these gods are supposed to be made from and everything else is made from, which of course is unbiblical with the whole creation ex nihilo, God creating from nothing, uh, which is you know, beside the point for the moment, uh, but can have its necessity of itself. It's either we, we we've narrowed it down to it's either caused by something else or it's uncaused. Can it actually be uncaused? Well, just from reasoning about our apple tree, we've seen that for something to actually be uncaused, its essence and existence have to be the same. It has to be being itself. Now, can eternal matter be being itself? And I would say the answer is absolutely not, because it's not just being. It's being of some particular type. It's a material existence, and therefore it's, it's limited uh, to this thing. It, it's changeable because somehow, and, and that's the other problem, where did, where did this first God originate to uh, rearrange this chaotic eternal matter into something else? And I've yet to see where that actually came from and how the whole process even started. But be that as it may, we know this eternal matter is changeable. So it's not just being; it's being of some particular. Uh, it's being of some particular type. And find this quote from uh, Ed Fazer here, uh, and this is from his book Aquinas, uh, A Beginner's Guide, which I would highly recommend. He says, if essence and existence were not distinct, they would be identical. And they could be identical only in something whose quiddity or its nature or essence is its very act of, of existing, such that it would be subsistent existence itself. That is to say, something whose essence is its existence would depend on nothing else, example, matter, for its existence, since it would just be existence or being but there could only possibly be one such thing, for there would be in no way in principle to distinguish more than one. So just in looking at this essence and existence distinction, uh, eternal matter can't possibly be existence itself. Even Richard Carrier, this is what's ironic. This, this Mormon concept of, of God and of the universe, it really is, like I said earlier, a materialistic view uh, that sounds very similar to something like the atheist uh, what atheist Richard Carrier argues uh, that the multiverse wow. just is existence. Richard Carrier says uh, something must exist without any explanation at all. So it may as well be the multiverse, an ensemble of yeah. universes that account for all physical reality. 
For if God can exist unexplained with all of his convenient attributes, then so can the multiverse. So he at least acknowledges something must yeah. exist necessarily. Uh, but we don't just say, oh, let's put God in there. No, we give a metaphysical argument that necessarily concludes yeah, whatever exists exactly. necessarily is essence and existence. And the same, identical. Yeah, it, it demonstrates absolutely. philosophically that, that materialism can't be the grounding uh, of that. So that's, that's right, a really good right. point. That's, that's good. Yeah, so Carrier well, so would essentially I, I, say the, the universe is just a, a brute fact. We don't have any explanation for it. It just is. And presumably that's what the Mormon would say about the, the eternal matter. But that's not an explanation at all. And philosophically, as we've seen, it is completely bankrupt. I mean, we actually give an argument for this. So if anybody's using a, a God of the gaps argument, it would be somebody like Carrier using a, a multiverse of the gaps argument, just throwing in this uh, this conclusion because we have to have one there. Right. That is that's it. That's that's an excellent point. One of the other things I'm, I'm was going to ask you about as well, kind of as we're going through this, is. We, we went over the classical view of God and the attributes of of God. How does that differ with Mormonism? Because I know they believe like God the Father, for example, is a man. Uh, physical bones, flesh, had physical relations with Mary. So he, he really couldn't have those same attributes uh, as as the historical classical view of God, could he? Uh, absolutely not. Again, like you said earlier, you know they use the same dictionary a lot of times. They use the same uh, vocabulary a lot of times, but they read out of a different dictionary. Uh, so use a lot of the same words, but give them completely different meanings. Uh, and, and so, yeah, they 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 believe God is a physical being. Uh, that and they you know, like it, Joseph Smith said, all even spiritual things are matter of some sort. Uh, so even the non-corporeal Holy Spirit who doesn't have a body, uh, who still is God somehow, and I'm not sure how that progression took place when he didn't become a man and all of this in their theology, but um, even he would be matter uh, uh, of some sort. Uh, but yeah, it's philosophically impossible for such a being to be unlimited being. Uh, back to the whole essence-existence thing, uh, Aquinas would say in, in his metaphysics that Essence limits existence, so that uh, existence itself is purely unlimited. But it, when it's conjoined with this particular essence, like a tree, like we've been talking about, mm-hmm. well, then that that essence of a tree limits its existence to being this thing rather than that thing over there, so to speak. Uh, and, and if something is material, well, it it is of necessity limited to being this thing and not that thing. And if it's limited. Well, obviously, it's not unlimited, and something whose essence and existence are identical is unlimited, and that would be the only case where you could have truly uh, an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, all-good, all-the-omnis type of of God. Uh, Again, it's philosophically impossible for the God of Mormonism to to be that. And I can't remember all the details, because I wrote a paper on this several years ago uh, about the, the moral argument and how it relates. Uh, to the God of Mormonism, and I think it was Osler, who I uh, who I quoted earlier, one of the, the Mormon philosophers, was essentially arguing that 
God could change. He could be untrustworthy or unloving, but he's not going to be. Wow. But the only reason he's, he's he's worthy of our admiration and respect is because could change but doesn't. And that's why he's right. all good and all loving. Yeah. And I want to say it brings to mind what Greg Kokel said one time. That That's like saying a half-full glass of water is really more, more full because it contains both emptiness and fullness. Well, that that's just <laughs> insane. That That's a terrible way yeah. to think about it. Yeah, because within the, the classical view of God, one of the one of the, the core attributes is immutability. And with the Mormon views of, view of God, where he's constantly changing, learning, growing, you know, being deified, God is certainly not immutable uh, in that in that context. And kind of with regards to, I'll have you talk on both of these things. In regard to knowledge, I got a good friend that's a, that's a Mormon who actually he's, he's been on the show before and um some of the things when we were talking he leans seems to lean and i i think he would agree if if he was here i don't think i'm misrepresenting him but seems to be uh very um what's the word very favorable or at least sympathetic with open theism as far as the view of god's knowledge talk to us a little mm-hmm. bit about within mormonism the doctrine of immutability why is that important how does mormonism fail with that and then also the, the, the kind of the difference between the classical view of omniscience and the Mormon view of, of, of that. Uh, well, I can't speak authoritatively because I haven't uh, done in-depth research on that and, and don't want to misrepresent what they say. Uh, but regardless of what they say, uh, I can conclude just philosophically what necessarily has to be the case, whether they admit that or okay. not. Uh, and, and that is, just like you've said, uh, a, a God who necessarily is a changing thing because we know he was once man and has progressed to Godhood. So necessarily he's already not immutable. He, he is changing. Uh, well, then he's always learning, just like you said. Uh, he can't be all-powerful and, and all-knowing in, in the classical sense uh, of those things. It's just not It's just not possible uh, for for. Uh, a changing being to be unchanging. Maybe it doesn't change anymore, but it's still a changing thing. It's not. Uh, it's not being itself, which is what we mean by God, uh, and and where the these omnis, the, these all powerful and all knowing, all those things necessarily come from. Uh, so it's just philosophically not possible for for such a changing thing to progress to godhood and, and be God and or divine in any uh, true sense uh, of the term. And, and yet, you know, I've had the same thoughts about, about open theism, that it, that it really has to, to lead to such a view. Uh, if God is changing, then he necessarily is learning and, and coming to know new things. And, of course, some modern-day Christians would, would hold the same view, and I, I think they're wrong. Uh, but, again, I think that is not so much an argument from the Bible as it is a philosophical argument from reality and back to the whole essence existence thing, uh, that something that is unlimited being itself and the source of everything else that exists uh, necessarily can't change. And if you can't change, then you can't learn. Uh, So God, while he is reasonable, doesn't reason. 
He doesn't form arguments and reason to conclusions. Uh, he just knows, uh, which is amazing. I remember, I think it was Jason Reed, uh, who I know you know, uh, made the analogy, uh, or it may have been uh, Dr. Richard Howe, one or the other, uh, made the analogy, you know, that God doesn't know in a different uh, in a difference of amount such that, uh, like the Mormon would say, we could progress to Godhood in a similar vein to say, you know, we could learn for eternity and we'd be approaching God's knowledge. He says, no, 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 that, that's not it at all. God knows in a completely different way than we do uh, because he is completely other than we are. We're like him, but he's nothing like us. And it's the difference wow. in a, a three-dimensional shape and a two-dimensional line. You can stack all the two-dimensional lines on top of each other that you want. You're never going to get a three-dimensional shape. We could learn right. all we wanted to learn, and then we're never going to know the way God knows because he just – no, actually, he doesn't just know. He is knowledge because his ethics and existence are identical. So when we say God is loving uh, or, or God loves, it means he is love. If he knows things, he wow. just is knowledge. He, he has power. Well, he just is his power, and all those things are necessarily unlimited. So it really just uh, – we have such a small view of God, even even in our traditional just good old conservative uh, Southern Baptist churches or whatever. Uh, we have such a small <laughs> view of who God actually is. We, we just – we don't have a yeah. clue. And, and if we're not willing to, well, to dig deep and do the philosophy, we're, we're not going to have a better understanding, I don't think. That's what I was just going to say. I mean you, you made some really excellent points and um, – you know, as well as I do, you have a lot of Christians that are just very skeptical of philosophy. It's uh, uh, a guy today saying, why do Christians care about philosophy? Why why do they use arguments and, you know, this kind of stuff? And right. um, I, I like how you pointed that out. Philosophically, things have to be necessarily a certain way. So, for example, uh, well, even with the Mormon view of God, it, it, you, you could do that because Mormons, argue from the text. Well, look, the Bible says God has eyes. The Bible says right. God has ears and arms and hands, and he repents. Therefore, he can't be, you know, omniscient because he's repenting. And, well, you know, that wouldn't make any sense at all. So you have text, some texts that say, well, God changes. Guys like Greg Boyd and Clark Pinnock and the Open Theists are going to argue from the text. And then you have Mormons, and then you have others that, that are going to argue from the text. And it's like, well, how do you know what one is 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 anthropomorphic and what one is is telling, uh, you know, more of more of uh, uh, literal view? So, uh, talk talk to us about that for a second. I I, I think you kind of hit a, hit on it already, uh, but the importance of that, right? Being able to go to philosophy to kind of bear out some of those issues of of what's anthropomorphic and what's not. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as you know, Dr. Richard Howe has done a lot of really good work uh, in this area. So I recommend listeners to to uh, Google Dr. Richard G. Howe and, and check out his blog. He's, he's done some extensive blog posts and, and uh, combox conversations on, on this particular topic uh, and, and has, has taught me a great deal. But you're absolutely right. And the example he and his brother Tom Howe use a lot is uh, the Dake Study Bible, which can be found in a lot of evangelical Christian bookstores, and he does the same thing. He just says, look, I'm reading the, the text at face value, and it says God has a body. 
God has arms. God has eyes. But then he'll get to a text that says God has wings, and they'll say, no, 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 that, that's just a, a metaphor, or that's just a anthropomorphism or, or whatever. And so, yeah, you ask the question, well, how do you know? You're either arbitrarily assigning those things, or you're doing philosophy because you can't not do philosophy, and you're doing it poorly. Uh, so we can't not do philosophy when we're reading the text. We can't just say, well, the text speaks for itself. No, it doesn't. You you filter the text through reality and, and through your views of reality. So if you have bad views of reality, you're going to have a bad understanding of the text. Uh, and and right. that really is the only way we can adjudicate between these things. We either have to be comfortable with blatant contradictions or we have to be able to understand what the text is actually communicating. In order, order to do that, we have to do philosophy, and so you have to do it well. Uh, Dr. Tom Howe, uh, and I would recommend, highly recommend his book, Objectivity and Biblical Interpretation. Uh, it's a thick book, uh, but it, it is a very good one. You can get it, I think, for three bucks, the Kindle, the Kindle version on Amazon, I believe, uh, and, and worth much, much more. Uh, than, than that small price, but he has this great staircase that, that I think is awesome. And, and the bottom stair is reality, uh, and the next rung up is, or he'd say reality, the way things, the way things are, or, or that which is. Uh, and the next step up is metaphysics, the study of that which is. And then we move up to epistemology, how we know that which is. And then we move up to linguistics how we communicate what we know about that which is. And the top level is hermeneutics, or how we understand what is communicated about that which is. But as you can see, the foundation is metaphysics, which rests on right. reality. So if we get the foundation wrong, chances are we're going to get our hermeneutics wrong. Or if we don't get them wrong, we're not going to be able to have any good reason uh, to argue for the fact that we actually have the right use uh, without doing uh, the metaphysics and the philosophy needed. Yeah, one of the very good points there. One of, one of the other attributes, kind of classically held, is the idea of God being omnipresent. Right? How does how does the Mormon view of God deal with that? If God is located to a body, you know, I am, I'm going to have to plead ignorance because I remember I just read that uh, hadn't been three weeks ago, uh, but I honestly can't remember the explanation they gave. Uh, but needless okay. to say, it wasn't the, the classical uh, understanding of what omnipresence actually means, the fact that uh, God is not limited to a particular place, uh, that he is, uh, at least through, uh, through, through his uh, sustaining creative action, uh, that he is present uh, everywhere simultaneously. Uh, and I honestly can't remember the the explanation they gave, but uh, it it apparently didn't make too much of an impression. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good. What are what are some of the other attributes that uh, you find uh, issues and problems with in the in the Mormon concept of God? Real quick, do we have uh, about 15 minutes left? Uh, more than enough time. If anyone wants to call in, get a question in seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. Seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. You got a question, comment, agree, disagree? That's that's okay. We'd love to love to talk with you anyway. So talk to us, uh, Adam. What are what are maybe a few of the other attributes uh, that you see as is, is, uh problem with uh, the Mormon view? 
Well, you know, I think one of the, the main things is, and I don't guess we would necessarily say this is an attribute of God, uh, but the fact that he is the only thing worthy of our worship uh, because he is that which is ultimate worth, uh, certainly not because he needs it, uh, because he, as Etienne Gilson says, he has it all already. So our giving him worship or not giving worship doesn't change him in any way, shape, or form, uh, which is a very good thing that I can't change God because otherwise we would be in uh, in bad shape. Uh, but to say that the God of Mormonism, who is actually a created being who was once like me and progressed to godhood and made this particular world, and he apparently... I don't know if he still has to worship his own God that created him. I'm not sure how that works. Um, but needless to say, he is not being itself. Uh, and as we've seen, even this eternal matter that they talk about must have uh, a source of its existence, uh, which would be the God of classical Christianity, uh, as I would argue anyway. Uh, but to say that this Mormon God of this world is, is worthy of my worship, logically, is no different than saying I should worship my earthly father. I mean, he, he's no more worthy of my worship. And I'm not talking about respecting your parents here. I'm talking about worship. He's no more worthy of my worship than my own dad is. And I love my dad. He's a great guy. Uh, but he's not worthy of worship any more than I am. <laughs> Uh, because we're flawed, yeah. fallen, fallen creatures, uh, and, and you know I can't help but but think of help me out here. Is it, is it wrong where, where Paul says they uh, uh, they they begin worshiping created things and, and exchange the glory of of God for created things? And that's right. essentially that that's what Mormonism has done, and, and that is the height of idolatry. And not that we're all not all guilty of idolatry to, at, at some level, uh, but to say this is my belief, this is my faith, uh, that, that amounts to nothing more than idolatry is a very dangerous thing and, and really a very sad thing. Yeah, I think that's a very, very good point. Some of those, some of those things, I think... And, and, you know, I've heard a lot of Mormons so just say we just, you know, we don't have a lot of uh, information or haven't been given, you know, enough information about some of those things. So it's, you know, we just have to have to kind of speculate on that. But, uh, you know, one of the things, too, and, and uh, tell, me, tell me your thoughts on this, for the Christian, the historic Christian, uh, when we die, we are resurrected. John 5, uh, 28 through 30 tells us we're going to be resurrected, we're going to have glorified bodies, we're going to have new bodies, um, but we're still creatures, right? I mean, we're still we're still creatures. I, 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 I would think our essence is still going to be the same, though we're going to have glorified bodies. But mm-hmm. what Mormon is saying is literally it's like a whole new, you're a whole new being. Right, because you go through this process of, of exaltation. What are what are some of your thoughts on that, and are there philosophical uh, issues with that as well? Well, it, you know, it, it's very complicated, and one uh, area that I 
don't know that I know enough about or think that most Mormons know enough about to to answer uh, such a question. I'm trying to pull up my notes from some of the questions I had from our uh, our Mormon uh, friend the other night because we got into some of that. Uh, but you know they okay. they believe that you were uh, a spirit being prior to coming to earth. So Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother uh, procreated you as a spirit being and then you took on a body. Uh, you were, were pre-existing and then you took on a body of flesh to, to quote, prove your worth, so to speak. Uh, and so then you progressed to some level uh, of, I believe in three, three different levels of heaven and so if you uh, are a man and get to the the top level of heaven, you can progress to God with your eternal wife and have your own spirit children and create your own uh, spirit worlds uh, and be the God of, of that world and that sort of thing. Uh, but of course, then you have the problem of well, where does the Holy Spirit fit in? Because you know Jesus and the Holy Spirit, Satan, you, me, we're all supposed to be the spirit children of of uh, Heavenly Father. And, and so I asked the question of how Jesus could be a spirit child and come to earth to live sinlessly, then why can't we? And his answer was, well, because Heavenly Father needed someone to redeem the, the children, and he he volunteered, essentially, and uh, was not born. Because of the virgin birth, he was able to, to live this sinless life, and he could save the rest of us. Now, I'm not sure why he hasn't progressed to God and to be the own God of his own world now, and he's still here with us. I'm, I'm not sure why that's the case. And, and if the Holy Spirit as well is this pre-existing spirit being, then how is he even holy if he hasn't come to earth, proven his worth, lived in this body of flesh, and all those sorts of things? So there, there seem to be just a ton of inconsistencies uh, w- with how this whole process of being spirit-born, being earthly-born, dying, being resurrected, progressing to godhood, and all these things, uh, there just seems to be inconsistencies with how the whole process even is supposed to work. And they're waiting on more revelation for, <laughs> for to fill in those gaps. I don't know. Uh, but uh, certainly seems uh, contrived. Not that that makes it false, because it seems that way. Uh, but uh, it certainly doesn't lend credibility uh, to the whole system, at least on my understanding. Uh, and maybe that right. is a very ignorant understanding, but that is uh, that is my understanding as it is now. Well, we got uh, about two two and a half minutes left. Wrap this up. Why why should we care about some of these issues? And uh, give us give us some of your concluding thoughts. Well, I would say we should care about it simply because it's true, <laughs> uh, and, and that is uh, one of the main things we were created for, to know truth. And if you want to argue with me about that, you've just proven my point uh, by saying that I'm wrong. Uh, you would say, no, that's not true, and I would say, exactly. Uh, and, and so if Mormonism is not true – then obviously we shouldn't believe it. Now, I know there are a whole lot of emotional issues involved and uh, family issues involved, all these things. 
but that's part of our problem in the Christian church as well. We follow our emotions rather than letting our emotions follow what we think and what we will. Uh, and our emotions follow reality. We should be led by our emotions. We should work to, to, to harness and control our emotions. And so if we're thinking like we're created to think and looking at reality, uh, then I'm convinced uh, it points to the fact that there is a God who exists that that just is being itself, and this can't be the God of Mormonism. And I would continue to argue that 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 God is the God of Christianity, that the Bible is reliable. Jesus did claim to be God and proved to be God through the resurrection, and, and that he said the Bible is the word of God and anything opposed to it must be false. This is the law of non-contradiction. And, of course, Paul says in Galatians 1.8, even if he or an angel proclaims another gospel, then he should be condemned, he should be cursed. In Mormonism, it is another gospel. It is idolatry. Uh, and, therefore, it, it is necessarily false. And I would just plead with anyone listening who, who is, is a Mormon or struggling with it or whatever – uh, just to think well, seek God, uh, not just not just in prayer, not just in feelings, but but by thinking well and honoring Him with your mind, and, and, and I'm I'm confident that that you'll come to the truth. All right, my brother, I appreciate you coming on. It's been a great show, good interview. I've learned a lot, and I'm sure our, our listeners will learn a lot as well. And uh, just want to wish you the best of luck there up in. Greensboro. I know you're taking a group to go see the movie tomorrow, and uh, be praying that's a fruitful time, and and uh, you guys will be able to um, hopefully do a little, maybe a little outreach. Or, or the theater you're going to is it close to the university? Or uh, yeah, it's just right down the road, not far at all. Okay, good, good deal. We'll be, be praying that that's a fruitful time for you, and I appreciate you coming on. And uh, look forward to having the most popular guest on Theology Matters back on again. <laughs> well, thank you for your time. Thank you for all uh, you and Melissa do. We appreciate you guys personally and from a ministry standpoint. And uh, if anybody wants to read the, the details of what we were talking about, they can go to org slash UNCG and uh, see the couple of blog posts that I wrote about it. And uh, feel free to interact. I would enjoy it. And I'll, I'll go ahead and throw that up on our Theology Matters uh, Facebook page as well. So, Very good. Uh, all righty, sir. I appreciate you. Likewise. All right. God bless. All right, folks. You too, buddy. So there you ha- All right. There you have it. Adam Tucker uh, dealing with some of these philosophical issues. Uh, we'll post those articles. Suggest you take some time, read through those articles. Next week, we are going to have a big show. We're going to have a debate with uh, Matt Dillahunty from the Atheist Experience. He is, or I I think he was, uh, president of the Atheist Society in Austin. I don't think he is now, but at one time he was. Anyway, very, very well-known atheist, and he is going to be debating our good friend Clinton Wilcox from Life Training Institute, uh, read by Scott Klusendorf. They're going to have a debate on abortion. And uh, my lovely wife is going to actually be uh, moderating and hosting that debate. So next week, uh, be sure to to come listen in, share it, get the information out there. 
Uh, abortion is a it's a big issue, and uh, you know it's got far-reaching consequences. So I would ask you guys to be praying for Clinton as uh, he's going to be doing that show, and uh, that it would be a good, fruitful, productive debate. Appreciate you guys joining us, and uh, we'll be back next week with another edition of Theology Matters. God bless. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack for the audience, what about those who've never heard about Jesus Christ? How does intelligent design differ from a theological doctrine of creation? How do you answer that? Well, creation is always about the source of being, where does everything come from? And uh, one, one way you might, might illustrate that is a joke that was making the rounds on the internet some years back where scientists come to God and they say, we can do everything you can do. God says, oh, that's interesting, show me. And then they say, well, we can, uh, we can create humans from scratch. We can take some dust and, and as they're about to continue, God says, well, wait a second, get your own dust. Okay, now, that's what creation is. It's giving being to existence. Uh, Carpenters take pre-existing materials, they're designers, and design is about taking pre-existing materials and finding patterns that point you to intelligence. So uh, another way I illustrate this is you imagine a pan balance, and you've got a bale that includes one side, and you've got a one pound weight on this side, which is up. How much weight is on this other side? Well, you know, you know it's more than one. It could be two pounds, it could be five pounds, it could be a million pounds. And that's how it is with intelligent design. We know that there's an intelligence behind the things that we see in nature, and things in biology and cosmology. But getting to an infinite, personal, transcendent, creator God of Christianity is not something the logic of intelligent design can take us to. But it's friendly to Christian theism in a way that uh, atheism, uh, the, the Dar- Darwinian evolution, and ev- uh, materialistic evolutionary theories are not. So it gives you a lot. It takes you some way. You know, it's closer to the kingdom. But if you want the gospel, you're going to have to go to the gospel. For those of you that want to learn more, this book, The Design Revolution, was very helpful to me, amongst many of his other books.